following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. If you are into backpacking or hiking, if you have experience doing that, um, of which I do not, but maybe you do, and if you go backpacking or hiking, then along the way, you have probably seen stacks of stones or rocks that look something like this. Go ahead and bring up that picture right there. You've probably seen something like that while you've been hiking or backpacking or in some kind of natural forest or preserve along a path. That's called a cairn. And that is a marker that directs you where to, how to continue on a particular trail. Or if there's something that you need to recognize, they put that marker there so that you will see that. Now, this is something that is used across culture, all over the world, the same type of thing. It's actually historic. Um, human beings have been doing this for years because it's such a great marker. If you're traveling along and you see stones like that, your instinct is to say, okay, who put that there and why? And it cues you to see that. What kind of landmark is this that has been set up? Well, people that are in charge of forestry in, in the United States and in, in charge of a, a lot of these uh, national parks with trails and hiking are starting to say that this is becoming a trend where people are setting up their own stacks of rocks to the point that it's becoming disruptive. And they're starting to, to ask hikers, please don't stack rocks for multiple reasons. On one hand, it's confusing because how do you know which stack of rocks you're supposed to follow? But on the other hand, they're saying it's becoming like so much that it's disrupting the natural beauty of the area. And so they're starting to call these rock structures rock graffiti. It's essentially like people coming in, leaving their mark and disrupting that the natural forest or, where, or, or beach or whatever you're walking through. Now, before you say, okay, ah, I mean, just chill out, okay? It's a stack of rocks, okay? Calm down. Before you say that, let me show you how out of hand it has gotten. Here's a picture of a beach that some tourists have been to. All right. So you go to the beach one day. You're expecting to enjoy the natural beauty of the sand and the surf and, and see all of nature, and you see that. And you say, okay, why do people have to do that? Okay, this is a little bit much. Like, who came out there, saw like a hundred stacks of rocks and says, we need another one. Let me put up mine, okay? Who actually thought that? Like, why do people do that so much? And so what, the, what people are saying is it's becoming rock graffiti. You come there, and even though it's not like spray paint, like humans have left their mark here, and it's kind of disrupting kind of the untouched natural beauty of that area. Okay, now I want you to put these piles of rocks, just put, put a pin in that for a second. We're going to come back to these cairns, these stacks of rocks, and see how it weaves into what we're talking about. What we're talking about in this series is that there's logic and evidence that builds a foundation underneath our faith. That whenever we take leaps of faith, whether spiritual or otherwise, we can see subconsciously there's calculations that we're making, we're building the logic, and then we take the leap of faith, and the same happens when it comes to spiritual things. 
But even that statement pushes our culture a little bit. Because what most people think is you've got this this big separation. You've got spiritual, religious things, which is all faith. And by that, they mean blind faith, without any logic or reason. And on the other pole, there are people that say, no, I am more logically minded or scientifically minded. And so I stand on evidence and logic, not by faith. In fact, evidence and logic, I mean, that's essentially what science is, right? It's the scientific method. It's, it's experimentation and observation of the evidence to come to conclusions about the natural realm. And so some people are more scientifically bent. Like you may be here today, you may be joining us watching online, and you might be saying, look, I'm more of a scientifically bent person, and that's affecting my spirituality because I I build what I believe based on the evidence. And if that's where you're at, then you think very similarly to to many of us here, and what we would challenge you is, is to say, you don't have to choose between faith and logic. In fact, you may be surprised to hear that the Bible says that in and of itself. I want to show you um, a passage. We're going through parts of the book of Romans. The very beginning of, of the book of Romans builds an argument that eventually they develop into the message of the book of, of Romans. And we're following through the beginning, following this logic. And I want you to see Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20. A guy named Paul wrote this to a group of people in Rome. And here's what he says. It may surprise you. Romans 1, 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Now, who is them? Let me just pause for a quick second. If you had been reading the verses leading up to this, you'd know that the them here is all mankind, all the, human, the entire human race. He's kind of stepping out and talking as if he's talking to all humans. So what he's saying is here, for what can be known about God is plain to the human race, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been, look at this, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, the human race, so they are without excuse. Now look what he says here. This is interesting. And if you are more built to be more logically minded, you like um, reason and rational thinking and science. This, this is especially interesting. He says, the invisible attributes of God, especially his eternal power, that particular attribute, has, God has shown it to the human race. In fact, he says, he's made it plain, obvious, easily perceptible since the beginning of creation through his creation. So in other words, there is evidence of his attribute of eternal power that is so clearly and obviously plain that people throughout the generations have seen it plainly. There's something so obvious 
that is evidence of who God is. And I wonder if the evidence for who God is that is apparently plain to see in creation, if we're just so close to it that we just have to take a step back and look at it as evidence. And I want to use a couple examples, the first of which is I want to go back to that pile of rocks because I think there's something that speaks to of an undergirding law that throughout the experiences of our lives, we've experimented over and over and over and know that this undergirding law is true from the experimentation of our lives. So for example, when you see a pile of rocks, like that pile maybe had five, six, seven rocks stacked, what is your immediate instinct? That has been used throughout history, cross-culturally, as a cue. Who put that there and why is it there? What we know is if there are rocks stacked in order, someone probably put it there. Now, let me ask you this question. How many rocks would have to be stacked for you to to stop saying, well, maybe that happened because of a rock fall and start saying a human put it there? Two rocks? You see two rocks stacked and I say, wait, wait. Is that supposed to tell me something? No, I think that just one rolled down the cliff and just kind of rolled kind of precariously on top of that. Okay, two rocks, maybe, maybe not. What about three rocks? If there's a rock and then another rock and then, well, maybe at some point somehow like in this really bad like rock fall, like three rocks came. Like that, I mean, for me, would be a little harder to believe. Like I'd have to have some geologist really convince me that three rocks could sit precariously on top of each other. But when you see like four, five, six, seven rocks, we know a human has been there. To the point that when you see a whole area littered with these rock piles, we say nature has been disturbed. We say it's rock graffiti. It's actual evidence of humans having been there. There's a law underneath the surface here that from our lives, our life experience, we have done enough experimentation to know. And here's what that law is. When you see order, it's evidence of intentionality. When you see order, it's evidence of intentionality. And the greater the complexity of the order, like when order starts to get to the point of precision, it's even greater evidence of intentionality. Two stones on top of each other, probably a person, but maybe not. Three stones, I'm pretty sure it was an actual, it was intentionally put like that. Four stones, even more. Five stones, six stones, an entire beach of stacks of stones. I'm not even questioning if that could have happened by chance. Order is evidence of intentionality. The more complex the order, the greater the evidence of intentionality. You following me so far? Our life's experience does little experiments constantly proving this law true. Let's say tomorrow morning you walk into your office and you remember how you stacked all of your pieces of paper, okay? You, you have papers on your desk and you remember how you stacked each one. There's this order that no one understands but you, but you have an order. And you walk in tomorrow morning and it's all messed up. Like it's just one big mixed up pile that happened. Your first instinct is to say, okay, like why did, who messed this up? But there are other possible plausible options. Like if someone tells you, hey, did you hear a raccoon got loose in our office over the weekend? 
Maybe a raccoon did it. If you look behind you and someone left your, your window open, like maybe the wind blew in and blew all your papers everywhere. I mean, there are possible other explanations, but let's go the other way. Let's say you left your desk a mess. And you come in in the morning, tomorrow morning, and they're all stacked in order. And someone tells you, did you hear a raccoon got loose in the office? What kind of raccoon? Like, stack my papers. Like, that's like, give it to the circus, okay? That's some, like, miraculous raccoon. Okay, does it matter, like, what kind of storm blew through there with your window open? No, you know, the, the fact that there's now order is evidence of intentionality, and the greater the order, the, like the more papers stacked or the more they're alphabetized or like stacked back and forth based on like when the assignments are due, like the greater the precision and the order, the greater the evidence of intentionality. You follow me? Okay. Now, what the problem is, we actually underestimate how mathematically improbable Order is from chance. Like as much as you know what we just said, like order is evidence of intentionality, as much as you've proven that through the experiments of your life, you and I still probably underestimate how improbable order is from chance. Let me show you from, with one illustration, okay? Let's say that I have here is just a regular deck of playing cards, okay? And let's say you go get, when you get home, the family deck of cards out of your junk drawer in the kitchen, all right? It's the same deck that's like all bent up and you've used it for 10 years, you know, you've shuffled it like thousands of times. So we'll say it's purely randomized, okay? And, but you remember what it was like the first time you took those cards out of the box. You remember, because it was all in order, right? It was all suited, and it all worked backwards in order, each by their suit. So let's say you take that purely random deck of 52 cards, and your friend says, hey, can you put these back into their original order? What will you do? You'll probably go like this. Okay, I have a seven, three, oh, here's another three, six, a king, another king, and then, oh, here's an eight, here's it. And you'll, you'll start intentionally putting, putting them in stacks. Would it ever occur to you, if someone says, can you put this back in order, would it ever occur to you say, sure, just give me a few minutes? Not in order. All right, it's going to take me a little longer than I thought. Hang on. No, I'll do it. it, it'll, it, it just in a few minutes, I'll get it, okay? Nope, not yet in order. Would it ever occur to you to randomly shuffle the deck expecting to get order? Would you ever do that? No, you'd say, dude, that'd take me like what, like a hundred years, like a lifetime? Like how, how, I mean, who knows like how long it would take me to get 52 cards back in order? Well, actually, you can calculate that mathematically, okay? I want to tell you the math behind how to know how long it would take you to put 52 cards back in order by chance, all right? Now, you might be like, oh, great, it's math, okay? Like long division gives me trouble, so you're going to have to break this down, all right? So just hang in there with me, all right? To figure out how to randomly shuffle this back in order, you have to know how many different combinations you can put 52 cards in order, okay? Because having them in perfect order is just one combination of all 52 cards. 
So you have to know in order to figure out, okay, how likely is that? So to figure out how many different orders are there of 52 cards, it's called 52 factorial, okay? I know some of you, just, someone just vomited on the side. You talk math like that, I can't go there. Just hang in, hang in there with me. Okay, here's how you figure out how many different possibilities 52 cards can come in, all right? First is you go all this, I know like for the first card it could be any one of the 52 cards, okay? Since one card has been played, the second card, there's only 51 different chances, okay? Then the next card is only 50, and you work your way down, so you actually multiply it like this, 52 times 51 times 50, all the way down to 1. You say, well, how many possibilities can 52 cards come into? It's this number, 8 times 10 to the 67th power. That's eight with 67 zeros after it. You're saying one deck of cards? One deck of 52 cards, there's that many different possibilities of combinations. You're saying, is that a big number? You know, I, I, I don't do long division, so what is eight times 10 to the 67th power? One mathematician that wrote for the BBC said it like this. That number, eight times 10 to the 67th, is roughly the same number of atoms in our galaxy. One deck of 52 cards. You say, I still have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Let's put it like this. How long would it take you to shuffle this deck of cards through all the possibilities so that you have a reasonable chance of one time shuffling them in order. Because to have a reasonable chance, you have to at least have enough times to equal all the possibilities. Okay, so put it like this, how long would that take you? Like 100,000 years, a billion years, like how long would that take you? All right, let's say you believed in the Big Bang Theory, and you believed that the universe is 13.7 billion years old. And let's say you sat down at the moment of the Big Bang with your deck of cards, and you shuffled it every second without stopping until now over the last 13.7 billion years. You would not yet have even come close to shuffling all the possibilities to have a 1%, to have a one chance to get them in order. In fact, the, comp the possibilities are, are so numerous that what I'm doing right now I just made history because this deck of cards, the order it is in now, the chances are extremely slim that in the history of the universe they have ever been in this particular order they are in in my hand right now. All the old western saloons with all the poker tables, all of the family reunions where cards are being played, like all of that the chances are extremely remote that they have ever been in this exact order that I'm holding in my hand. Okay, here's what, why I tell you all this. That's just 52 cards. That's just the chances of 52 cards being in order by chance. We significantly underestimate how improbable it is that order happens except by intentionality, let alone complex order, let alone precision order could come about without intentionality doing that. That's something 
we prove over and over by the experiments in our life experience. Let me give you one more example to kind of visualize this. Okay. I want you to say that sometime this week, NASA calls you. Like, it's like every week for me, okay? So NASA calls you, and they say, okay, nobody else knows this, but we found a planet a few years ago that we believe could sustain life. And so what we've done, we've run the profile, and you are the person we want to send, naturally, to explore this planet. No one else has ever been there, and we have the technology to fly you all the light years, and you'll get there in just a couple months. We're going to send you by yourself, first person to ever walk on this planet, and you're going to collect samples, take pictures, shoot video, send us back information, and tell us about your experiences. And you say, naturally, this is the opportunity I've been waiting for. I'm in. So you go to uh, Cape Canaveral, you, you get on your spacesuit, you get in your, your uh, spaceship and you fly, it takes you a couple months, you land on this planet and your spaceship comes down, you walk out, you've got your, you, your spacesuit on, you've got the things you're going to collect, samples, and you look around. You are on a world all alone. Amazing. All alone. You're walking around and you're picking up rocks and you're looking and a couple days in, you stumble across something on the ground. You stumble across this. Anytime now. There we go. You stumble across that stone. Now, what are you starting to think? You're wondering, okay, I, did someone already come here? Like, did they lie to me? Like, was someone else here? Because that looks, I mean, the way it's shaped, I mean, it looks exactly like an arrowhead. I mean, did someone else come here? Yeah, but why would a human from Earth come here and bring arrowheads? Like, that doesn't make sense. And then you think, okay, could there be intelligent life here that with intentionality carved this stone? Or is it possible on this entire planet through the lifetime of this planet that a stone just happens to look like that with that level of precision? And you say, I don't know. I'm going to put it in my, in my little box, put it back on my space station. It's still a mystery. But let's say you're walking a couple days later, a couple weeks later, and you stumble across something else. Let's say you stumble across this. Wait for it. There it is. Now what are you thinking? You're saying, okay, ah, oh, jeez. I mean, I guess it's possible that a stone could just some point in the, the lifespan of this planet like get lodged perfectly in the right way at the end of the stick and then something got coiled around it like right at that spot. You say, it's possible, but most of us are starting to say, okay, there is, like that happened with intentionality. There's someone who made that and you're probably starting to say, okay, there's people here and they have weapons. Did, are there any weapons on my spaceship? You're starting to say that right there is enough precision. That's enough order that I'm convinced that was intentionally done. Okay, but let's say you're a real skeptic. You're like, I've never believed in aliens. I don't watch X-Files and all that stuff. Like, no way do I believe there's intelligent life on this planet. Okay, for those remaining few of you that are still not convinced, let's say you walk around this distant mountain range and you stumble across this right here. All right, are you con would you be convinced now? 
You say, well, come on, that's like a city. I mean, that's like a, I mean, look at those like precision structures. And, and, and you say, well, well, wait a minute, there are, you can't see any aliens. I mean, how do you know that this, I mean, you can't see them. You don't see the intelligent life. You're, yeah, but you're like, look, I mean, look at those structures. I mean, look, there's space, looks like these, these space objects or spaceships that seem to be leaving somewhere and going somewhere very intentionally. They seem to be knowing where they're supposed to go. Like, this would be enough, I, I think, to convince anyone that there is intelligent life on that planet. Like, that's been done with intentionality. Like, that doesn't just happen. Okay. Let's pull it back around to what Paul says in Romans. I want you to stumble across the universe like it's the first time. I want you to think of all these elegant, precision, scientific laws that seem to govern this universe. I want you to think about just the things you see, the things you do. Think about even just your body. I mean, the brain, the complexity of the brain, the eye. Like, let's just talk about one piece of your body. Let's just talk about one cell. You have like a hundred trillion cells in your body. And the more scientists discover about the cell, the more they're shocked at its complexity. In fact, some scientists have even said it's as complex as a spaceship. Some have even said a single cell is as complex as an entire city. And I want you to think, just even within one cell of the hundred trillion in your body, just the specific pieces of your cell, like for example, um, the mitochondria, which is, that they say is the powerhouse, powering your whole cell. Just think of the complexity of that. Harvard put together an animation of just the mitochondria in the cells in your body. And they, they, this animation zooms as if it's looking already into the cell and you see this, this oblong shape, which is the mitochondria, one of the mitochondria in your cell, in, in each cell, and it goes into that and shows you what's happening in the mitochondria in one of the 100 trillion cells in your body. I want you to look at this video, check it out.
Beautiful, right? That's inside of, a, of the mitochondria inside your cells, which are about a, trillions of them inside your body. Look at the beauty of that. The elegance of that. Okay, we're not talking like five stacked stones. Well, someone had to put five stacked stones there. That just doesn't happen by a rock slide. We're not talking about 52 cards, which at a rate of shuffling them once per second, there's not been enough time in 13.7 billion years to get them into order. We're talking about that. I mean, look at that. I mean, stumble up across the mitochondria in the cells in your body like it's the first time and ask yourself, I mean, that amount of precision and order, isn't that evidence of intentionality? I mean, look at that. Look at the structures. I mean, look at those precision, elegant structures. Look at, I mean, there's things flying around. It looks like they know exactly where they're supposed to leave from and where they're supposed to get to. Some, says the com- some say the complexity of the cell is the equivalent of the complexity of a city. And yet, if we hypothetically stumble across a city on some distant planet, we're like, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, intentionality put that city there. That's not going to happen by chance. So when we stumble across something equally complex and elegant and precision inside of our bodies, what's then the barrier for saying, no, there's the same level of evidence for intentionality? So there's this, I wonder if sometimes in science there's this thinking that the only use for God, because the belief that there is no God, like atheism, that belief, in the scheme of history, is a relatively recent thing that's been popularized. The generations and generations and generations before, they knew it as an obvious thing. It'd be ludicrous to not believe in God. And so some science, scientists will step back and say, the only purpose for God is to fill in the blanks for the things we don't yet understand. And so the ancients, of course, they believe in gods because they don't, they don't know what we know. But with every discovery, it's almost like there's this thinking out there, with every discovery, we no longer need to believe in God. But that's really an illogical thought. Think about it. It's like, the, it's like saying the more I learn about auto mechanics, the less I believe that Toyota exists. Just because I'm learning more about the the elegant laws that govern the universe and how things work together doesn't mean that the manufacturer doesn't exist. It's just showing me how they wanted the automobile to run. The more science discovers about the complexity and precision of this universe, of of our bodies, of the cells in our bodies, it's actually more and more and more evidence as there's more and more complex order. We know by the experimentation of our life's experience that the more complex the order and precision is, it's even more evidence of intentionality behind it. 
What Paul says in this passage in Romans chapter 1 is he says it's so plain to see that God's invisible eternal power is on display through his creation from the beginning. It's obvious. We all prove it by the experimentation of our lives. Order comes by intentionality. When we see the beauty and complexity of this world, what had to be behind those laws had to be an intentional, intelligent designer. It's logical. So what does that mean then for us? I mean, look at what this passage said. It says, so because his attribute of his eternal power is so plainly, clearly seen, it then says, so we are without excuse. Well, what does that mean? He's going to go on to develop this idea Throughout, through the book of Romans, he's going to develop this idea of if there is an intelligent designer, which all creation points to, there's a designer behind all of the scientific laws we uncover. They're his laws. If there's a designer behind all of that complexity, then that means he made us, and so then he is our creator. We can't invent him to be what we want him to be. We can't, we can't morph him into what we want him to be. He made us. We don't make him. And if he made us, then we answer to him. We are responsible to him to achieve the purposes for which he made us. And what the book of Romans says is he says, when all of us stand before God, each one of us, all of us fall short. We have shortcomings called sin that we break the laws and expectations of our Creator. And all of us stand before Him guilty, and the punishment for our sin, our shortcomings, is death, eternity away from God. Now you say, wait a minute, okay. It's one thing to believe in an intelligent designer, but I don't like God being like that. I like God being more like this. Like I, I like Him to be not as much like that. He, he just lets me do my thing, you know, I, just leave me alone, God. I kind of like God to be like that. But here's the thing. If he's the creator, we don't create him how we want him. In the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, maybe you, you've read some of the books or you've, um, you, you've seen the movies, there's this character that's a lion. His name is Aslan. And Aslan is the Christ figure of the, the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a lot of similarities. He creates... Um, he creates Narnia, he, he sacrifices his life. There's a lot of similarities he's drawing between God or Jesus and this lion Aslan. And at the, this one point, the children are hearing about this lion and they say, whoa, it's a big lion? This is a huge lion. And they say, well, is he safe? And the character through C.S. Lewis corrects that and says, make no mistake, Aslan is not a tame lion. No one has domesticated him, in other words. No one has tamed him. He doesn't do tricks. He doesn't, no one has been able to say, Aslan, this is how you're going to act. And the point, the theological point under this that C.S. Lewis is saying is, you cannot domesticate God. You cannot tame him. You cannot bring him into your home and say, God, this is how I would like for you to operate. He is not a tame God. He invented you, you do not invent him. He is who he is. And what we believe he has declared through the Bible to us is we stand before him having fallen short and deserving an eternity away from God. You say, I don't like it. 
But we cannot craft him what we want and we have to accept him for who he is because he made us. But that's not where the the message of Romans stops. He says, the wages of our sin, the cost of our sin is our death. He says this, but the gift from God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That God looks down at his creation, he looks down at you, who he has wired together with precision, and says, even though you've fallen short, even though you feel like you're a thousand miles away, even though you say, if you even knew what was in my past, even though you know who you are, what you've done, the guilt that you carry, or shame, regardless, he looks at you and says, I love you. And I entered into my creation as Jesus, God in the flesh. He had something like a hundred trillion cells with mitochondria in them. And he walks on this earth, surrendered his life, was crucified and killed. Can you imagine that? The inventor of life killed? What an irony. But because he is the inventor of life, he can defeat death. And on the third day, rose again from the, de- from the dead and says that death on the cross was to pay the punishment for your sins. You put your faith in Jesus and you're permanently forgiven. That's the message of God to you. See, here's the the ultimate step of faith. It's not just believing in God. It's believing in what God did to save you through Jesus. I want to pose that question to you. You've seen, it's going to take a step of faith. You've seen the evidence of some intelligent designer, intentionality behind the glorious, elegant, precision, complex order of this universe. You've seen that, but here's the message that he loves you and he sacrificed himself to save you. Can you take that step of faith today? And if you want to, I want to lead you in a simple prayer to put your faith in Jesus today. Can you just take a moment and just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If that's you, you say, look, I, I, I believe there's a God and it terrifies me because what does God think of me? But I'm ready to take that step of faith that he loves me and that, his, that Jesus' death on the cross saves me for all eternity. I'm ready to take that step of faith. If that's you, then, then you can begin that life of faith with just a simple prayer right now. And I will lead you in that prayer. I'll, I'll, these words, you make your words in your heart and just say them silently in your heart right there, whether you're here in this room watching online. Make these words your own in your heart to God. Say this. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for wanting to save me even though I know how far I am from you. I know there's sin in my life. I know I fall short. But thank you that Jesus took the penalty for my sin. I believe in him. Thank you for forgiving and washing away my sin. And I surrender my life to you as my God and my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. 
For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.